Good morning. The last time that I spoke to you, I noted that uh, following the Last Supper, Jesus has been preparing his disciples in these final moments, recorded in chapters 14 to 16. Coming to the end of these final moments, our text this morning records the words of Jesus as he prepares the disciples for the overwhelming sorrow that they would imminently experience, the heartbreak as he is taken from them and put to death. Their whole world is about to come crashing down. Uh, They had put all their hopes and staked their futures on the belief that Jesus was the Messiah. Uh, The previous Sunday, their hopes were high as Jesus rode into Jerusalem to the hosannas of the crowd. But now everything that they had hoped for, uh, everything that they have expected, appears to come to a sudden, shocking end. For there is less than a day before Jesus is in the grave. And so, as we see here, Jesus is preparing them and subsequently preparing us for when our worlds come crashing down. So verses 16 to 18 tell us that the disciples are concerned because Jesus has told them that there is but a little while before he is to be taken away. They immediately pick up on that phrase, a little while. Uh, Their hearts are disturbed, especially as he talks about going to the Father. And facing their question on what this meant, he instead points them to a time of sorrow, of weeping, of lament as something that is unavoidable, inevitable and imminent. The hope that Jesus offers is not in the avoidance of the grief, it is in the way in which the disciples approach it and perceive it. Hope lies in the fact the sorrow will be turned to joy, which is uh, what he's explaining in the maternity analogy. Uh, There is to be suffering, Uh, there is to be great anguish, But there is to be joy, and as we see, it is a joy that cannot be taken from them. Now, when we wish to apply these verses to ourselves, we have to do so mindful of what the disciples are facing. Jesus does not dismiss the sorrow, he does not diminish the pain, but seeks to place it in the wider context of his victory over the very things that would threaten to overwhelm and destroy them, and subsequently overwhelm and destroy us. As such, one thing to draw from this passage is that despite our circumstances, we can rejoice because our future is assured. We know that there will be joy after the suffering. Because no matter how bad it gets, uh, even in the deepest depths of despair, God is with us. God uh, brings with him hope. And as the people of God, we have solid promises from our God. As the people of God, our joy is not determined by our present struggles, but by our future, by the glorious destiny that awaits us. This is the hope that is given in the birthing analogy, where pain is not without hope, where suffering gives way to joy. And so as we read this, we are reminded that there is a guaranteed joy after the suffering that we endure. As Jesus says in uh, Matthew 5 verse 12, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The context of suffering now, but glory and joy 
in the future. However, I think it's important that we do not simply imagine that the joy of the Christian is found entirely in a distant future. Now that is the backdrop, that is the the base note that should never be entirely out of view. However, in a world that is broken and lives marked by suffering and loss and death, we need to realise that joy can be found in the present. The joy of the believer is not just simply a future replacement of sorrow, a way of coping with the present, with promises far away. The joy of the believer is in complete contrast to anything that the world could even comprehend, because it does not depend on happy circumstances, but in the person of Jesus Christ, which means that there is to be scope for joy in the midst of the suffering. You know, it always amazes me how we hang the heaviest weights on the most flimsy of hooks, by which I, I mean that similar to the world, we allow our joy to be based on things which we know deep down are tenuous, things which are fragile and able to be taken in a moment. Uh, Health, money, friends, family, the broken world that we live in, all can be taken away in a heartbeat. And with them our world collapses. We are overcome, and understandably so. However, Even the prospect of such a loss, of such a nightmare, can rob us of our joy today. It can fill us instead with anxiety, cripple us with fear, as the spectre of loss hangs over our future. Now the blessings that we can experience in life uh, are great, are wonderful, but they are inadequate as a foundation for lasting joy. They are uncertain, they are transitory. And we are not to be without foundation, for even in the very depth of despair there is to be joy. Now that might seem like a contradiction, but it is the testimony of the people of God through the ages. When the children of Israel uh, are rescued from the land of Egypt, the very first thing they do is they rejoice. They they sing songs of joy. Uh, In fact, the joyful song of Moses and that of Miriam in Exodus 15 is the immediate response. Now, in the context of what we're talking about this morning, it is important that we realise the circumstances of these songs. As a people, they have been witness to the fact that God firmly has his hand on them. But they are singing in the middle of a desert. With no prospect of fresh water or food, they are largely unarmed and facing enemies far mightier than they. The promised land lies many miles and many years away. And yet in the midst of all of that, in that daunting context, they found joy in the wilderness. Because no matter what they face, they face it with God. It becomes an example um, for the nation. It's a, a lesson uh, teaching uh, later generations that the joy of God's people is not determined by their present struggles, but by their God who never leaves them. The one who walked with the children of Israel through the wilderness is the one who walks with his children every generation since. Uh, later, Isaiah will take this theme of joy in the wilderness when it comes to his own broken nation. In Isaiah 51 verses 10 to 11, he proclaims that the Redeemer who saved the Israelites in the past will also put a song of joy on the lips of his generation despite the horrors that they face. Isaiah looks forward 
to a redeemer. As the one who is the source of this joy. So to the disciples, it is they who see Jesus once again and they discover this joy. It is therefore also true for us. When we have our eyes turned to Jesus, we find a joy that cannot be taken away, as we saw in chapter 16 of John, verse 22. Uh, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. There is something here to hold on to, uh, some one that is the source of joy that cannot be taken away, uh, which means that the joy that we can have is not reliant on our circumstances, Instead, we are called to have an attitude of faith, to turn to God in the midst of the turmoil. Uh, this is what lies behind Paul being able to say in Philippians 4.11, For I have learned in whatever situation to be content. Regardless of the circumstances, and he had some crackers uh, in prison, uh, beaten, awaiting execution, he is able to rejoice. <laughs> He's not rejoicing in the chains or the beatings or the sentencing. But in Jesus Christ, who stands there with him and who cannot be taken away no matter what his enemies do. Now, all of this might sound impossibly out of reach, you know, something that maybe the Apostle Paul, the great man, could accomplish, but beyond the likes of us. It can also sound a little bit sanctimonious. You know, just turn your eyes to Jesus and it'll be okay. Now, if we misunderstand the point, it runs the risk of diminishing suffering and ignoring the overwhelming nature of grief. We can get the wrong end of the stick in a message like this. Now, as a father, I am painfully aware that getting the wrong end of the stick is very common. Um, you know, something that I think is very straightforward can be understood in a completely different way. I remember telling uh, my two older sons, uh, Isaac and Elijah, uh, the story of the boy who cried wolf. Uh, you know the one uh, where uh, the boy who is left looking after the sheep on the hillside uh, is uh, compelled from sheer boredom to liven things up. And so he goes down to the village and he, he, he says to the village folk there, there's a wolf, there's a wolf coming. It's coming to eat the sheep that I've been left responsible for. Quick, quick, come and rescue the sheep. And these villagers, they, you know, they get, I don't know, some pitchforks or something and they go storming up to go rescue the sheep. And of course, it's a lie. Uh, the boy thinks this is hilarious. The villagers less so. And they return to their work having scolded him. However, the cycle continues. The boy gets bored, he cries wolf, the villagers arrive on the scene and the lie is exposed. And this continues to the point until eventually a real wolf arrives on the scene. And because the boy has lied so many times when he cries wolf, no one will believe him. And the sheep are consumed. And in some versions of the story, so is the boy. <laughs> now, at the end of my telling this famous moral story, uh, I ask my boys... What is the lesson here? So my eldest, Isaac, turns to me and says, Oh, I know. The lesson here is not to tell lies, because if we do, it will cause us problems, and maybe even serious ones. So, of course, at this point I'm thinking, Daddy's success. I've done a good job. Clearly I'm good at teaching my boys these moral lessons. And that was until Elijah turned around, rolled his eyes and said, No, that's not the moral of the story. The moral of the story is not to tell the same lie twice. <laughs> I do actually have quite a lot of hope for that boy. My point, though, is that something that is straightforward, 
The idea that we can have joy in the midst of the despair, you know, when we focus on Christ rather than the circumstances, could be misheard. It can sound as if I am dismissing the very real anguish that we can go through. So let me make this clear. There is no room for suppressing sorrow. It is real. And so it is not realistic, healthy or necessary to suppress sorrow. Uh, Paul, who was able to find this contentment, also talks about being in the grip of grief. He calls it being full of sorrow in 2 Corinthians 6 verse 10. Indeed, there are many examples of the people of God being overwhelmed by their circumstances, by the very real torment that life can bring. And God works with them in the midst of that, even when they're not ready. No, the Bible doesn't offer a trite comment that acts as nothing more than a plaster over a gaping wound, a religious equivalent to that, you know, turn that frown upside down nonsense. If that is what we offer, then inevitably we give the impression that it is unspiritual to grieve. I know of Christians who think that they were expected to smile, to praise the Lord around other Christians when dying inside. That is not the message this morning. Instead, we need to think of examples like Habakkuk, who who in chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, uh, describes his worst case scenario. Now, each of us has a worst case scenario. Uh, The thing that we dread happening, the thing that would make our world crash down around us. And Habakkuk is facing his. It is looming above him. And what does he do? We see his response in, in, in chapter 3, verses 18 to 19. Yet, you know, so despite the worst case scenario, yet I will rejoice in Yahweh. I will be joyful in God, my Saviour, my God. Yahweh is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. He chooses to rejoice in Yahweh, the God of his salvation. Now, this is no glib, starry-eyed joy or an approach detached from reality. He's not just simply refusing to see what is coming. We don't even know if the prophet survives the coming destruction, the almost total annihilation of his people. Instead, Habakkuk recognises that Yahweh, in the midst of all this turmoil, is the one unchanging thing, the single reliable thing in his life. Regardless of how things deteriorate, no matter who lets him down or hurts him, the one unchanging thing that he can base his entire life on that allows him to have some measure of security is the unchanging nature of his God. He determines to rejoice in God, not in his circumstances, because no matter what, the one thing that can never be taken away from him is Yahweh. And he rejoices in him. You see, having this, having something reliable to hold on to alters your perspective. And by focusing on God, as opposed to focusing on our suffering, changes the nature of what we endure. Habakkuk looks at God instead of the suffering, because if he looks at the suffering, he will be overwhelmed with no hope. When you realise that the reliable God is the one who is going through the suffering with you, weeping with you, And that the required endurance is not done alone. When you realise God, the reliable foundation, remains with you, 
And if you face it together, it changes everything. He is a source of joy, of relief, of hope in the midst of the sorrow. Now let me explain what that theology really means. Because uh, that was all great sounding stuff, at least in my mind. But what's the reality? Well, when my son Elijah, who I mentioned earlier, well, when he was five weeks old, he contracted meningitis and septicemia. Uh, he was not given much chance to survive. We were uh, told very much to prepare for his demise. And I remember leaving him with my wife Maddie in the hospital because I had to go back and look after Isaac. As I left, I was consumed with grief, with anger, with bitterness, and I raged against the unfairness of it all. And while I did so, I screamed out to God. And in that moment, I realised that he too hates the effect of sin in this broken world. That as the author of life, he rails against the existence of death, that he too felt the pain. I realised that I was not alone, that this God who shared my pain and walked alongside me within every aching step of that journey was the same one who guaranteed that this will not continue. That one day every tear will be wiped away. When death is vanquished entirely, that's his plan. That's what he is going to do. And it changes everything. Not just because in that instance I have a happy ending with my son recovering, but because I had a God who could not be taken away and who was walking with me every step of the way. You know, the pithy, correct theological statement would be something like, um, unbelief puts our circumstances between us and God, but faith puts God between us and our circumstances. I mean, it works. It's eloquent. But the reality of it was that when grief gripped me, when when the next breath seemed impossible because of this broken heart, it was about the one who would lift enough of that weight off my chest so I could gasp in the moment. I learned that night that we do not get the life that we want because we live in a world destroyed by sin. So God can mend the broken heart, but he doesn't prevent it from being broken in the first place. He restores the spiritually crushed, but does not halt the forces of oppression here and now. Instead, with the promise of future glory, he takes our hand in the present and he walks with us. Which is the source of joy. You know, it's all very well saying, look to Jesus. He is there with you. But what does it actually mean? Well, it means that we look to him as our source of joy, like Habakkuk. We, we look beyond our sorrow. We see that we're not alone and instead have the one who will never be taken away. I, I think in order to understand this, what we really mean by this joy, we need to consider the Hebrew word hallelujah. It is, of course, a word of praise offered up by the people of God, but not because things are going well. But because the joy that we can have comes from that unshakable God. He is immovable when our world crashes down. He is the king of heaven who stoops down to be with us. Hallelujah comes from a root that literally means to shine. Not because things go well. 
because we are made different by having God within us so we stand out as a light in the darkness even as we are enveloped in the darkness we're not broken though we are bruised we're not beaten though bowed we are able to shine as a witness of what God does within us even in the midst of the sorrow I remember um one of the many occasions as a child where I was in trouble in Sunday school, uh, we were being taught about what was appropriate to pray for. And the usual example was trotted out. I was told, uh, the, the younger version of me, that it would be inappropriate for me to pray to God for a Ferrari car, if I'd even had any interest in such a thing. I was told, this is not how prayer works. Rather, instead of praying for things like that, I should be praying for things like forgiveness. It's true. But on the conclusion to the lesson, I was asked if I then for, if therefore understood the nature of prayer. And I, therefore, being me, replied with something of a malicious gleam in my eye. Oh, I believe so. What you were teaching us was that you cannot pray for a Ferrari and expect to get one. Rather, God wants you to steal the Ferrari and then pray for forgiveness later on. Which makes me think that maybe I can now see where Elijah gets it from. Now, if I was the Sunday school teacher in that context, in that instance, I would want to say to my younger self, no, you fool, which, well, I mean, you can say that kind of thing to yourself, I guess. Do not get how small you are thinking. You do not want to aim for something as mundane and as useless as that. Instead of saying, I want a car, declare, I want the end of suffering that is promised to me in eternity. I want to shine now with the glory of God. I want to be able to stand in the midst of the storms of life on the rock that will not move. <laughs> Listen, you must forget the small things and instead pray that God would give you the strength to stand, to shine, to live a life that reflects him even as the darkness seeks to envelop you. We do not get the life we want. But I want to live the way I should. You see, there is nowhere that I can be that is out of his sight. No crisis where he cannot hear. With him, no matter what, I can stand. So that when everything else is stripped away, when my health is broken, my family taken, my life at an end, I can smile at my adversaries <laughs> and say, yeah, you can take all of these things, but you cannot take away my saviour. My Redeemer, my wonderful Counselor, no matter what the world does, I get to see from the heavenly places and that cannot be taken away. I know that one day I will see him face to face and there is nothing that can be done that will stop it. And so in our text this morning, we know that there is less than a day before Jesus lies dead in the grave, but he does not stay there. It means that though we will undergo the sorrow, endure the grief as is promised, we know that our joy is greater because Christ is greater than all of this. We find that our joy is not built on the things that we cannot hold on to, but in the one who cannot let go of us. It is not trite, it doesn't ignore reality, but it helps us see things the way that they need to be seen. And to rejoice in the Lord God, my Redeemer, though my worst case scenario is coming for me. 
That is what we learn from the words of Jesus to his disciples here. Amen.